so this morning, uh, we are in the third week of Advent, right? We got three candles lit, which is a season that the church walks through every year to help them prepare their hearts for Christmas. Uh, Advent comes from an old Latin word that means arrival, so we try to do some things that are a little different during these weeks to really kind of hit reset and to prepare our hearts and minds to really celebrate the arrival of Jesus on Christmas in the way that we believe that that changed our world forever. And as part of uh, the preparation for Advent this year, we're working through a teaching series by we're talking about a theme that at first glance might not seem like it has much to do with Christmas uh, because we're talking about the idea of fear. Um, But here's why I think that's important to talk about. Fear is really everywhere in our world today. But we also believe that what happened at Christmas, the, the birth of Jesus, that that makes a real practical difference in the way we live our lives each day, including the way that we face the fears that we see in the world around us. Um, So that's why we're tying fear and Christmas together. And today we're gonna be looking, uh, we're gonna take a moment and look at a story in the Christmas story when an angel appears to a young woman named Mary. Uh, It's found in Luke chapter one, and I'd love for you to turn there in the Bible. If it would help you for any reason, there's some red Bibles in those seats in front of you. You can grab one of those and turn to the page number that's there on the screen. And really what we're doing in this series, there are four different Sundays in Advent, and there are four different stories, four different times in the Christmas story where an angel appears and says those words, fear not, don't be afraid. So we're looking at one of those each week. And as you're turning to the story about Mary, let me give you a little bit of background on what's happened in the first part of Luke chapter one. So at the beginning of that, there's another story where an angel appears to an old man named Zachariah, and he is a priest. And he and his wife, who's also very old, have never been able to have kids. But the angel tells Zachariah, hey, your wife is going to have a baby. And he's like, I don't know if you know how this works, but the the chance is kind of gone for us. It seems crazy. But as always happens, what God said would happen, happens. And his wife Elizabeth does get pregnant. And then we're going to pick it up in verse 26. And this is six months after that announcement. So the text says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy... God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Okay, so a little bit of background on this. In, in the first century Jewish world, um, girls often got married around the age of 12 or 13, a lot younger than today. And typically the engagement would last a couple of years. So there was a moment when the, the young lady was pledged to be married. And then there was a season where the, the fiance was preparing things. Oftentimes he was building a house for them to live in. And it might last a year or two. And then they would, would sort of finalize the marriage by coming together. And so when you think about Mary as a 12 year old, like think about like a middle school age girl, right? Or maybe a young high school age girl. And she's somewhere in that period between like when she's been pledged to be married and when the marriage is actually gonna happen. And one of the things that we're gonna see as we go through this chapter is that Luke as the author is really going out of his way to make a contrast here, to help us compare Mary to Zachariah and Elizabeth. So for example, Elizabeth, right? She's very, very old to be pregnant. And Mary is very, very young to be pregnant. Uh, You look at Zachariah and Elizabeth, they they, they have some social clout because of their position. He's a priest, he works in the temple, they live in the the capital in Jerusalem. Uh, Mary doesn't have any of that. She's from this tiny little but nowhere town called Nazareth. And she's really removed from the center of power and influence of the day. She's not remarkable in any way. In fact, even her name Mary is a little, little fun fact for you. Mary was one of the most common names for girls back in that day. So it's almost like Luke is saying, okay, after the angel appears to the priest in the temple in the capital, he goes and he visits Jane Doe 
in like, I don't know, Blodgett or something like that, right? Some little, <laughs> no offense if you're from Blodgett, right? But you know, it's just, just a small, small town out in the sticks. Um, so angel shows up, says, don't be afraid. Look, look at what he says next. So this is how Mary responds. Um, Mary was greatly troubled. At his, I would be greatly troubled if an angel showed up too. And she wondered what kind of greeting might this be? Like, what's coming next? But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Okay, now if Mary was greatly troubled when the angel showed up in the first place, she's got to really be greatly troubled when she hears what the angel actually is saying is going to happen to her, right? I mean, I can only imagine that that feeling is amplified, right? She's going to have a baby. How is this going to happen? She's probably terrified. It shows on her face, which maybe is why the angel says, fear not, you know, don't be afraid. But then he goes on to tell her, okay, even though you're a virgin, you're going to have a son and you're going to name him Jesus. And Jesus is not going to be just a normal kid. So she goes on, the angel says that the, the, the baby is going to be called the son of the most high. And we don't often think about it in these terms, but the angel is making a pretty stunning theological claim about Jesus by saying that he is the son of the most high. He, he's talking about the divinity of Jesus. He's talking about the connection. There is a really special and unique connection between God and between your baby. And if that's not enough, it's not enough that he's making this big theological claim about the baby. He then goes on to make a political claim about the baby, right? Because he says that her baby will one day sit on the throne of David and will reign over the people of Israel in a kingdom that will never end. Okay, so a little background on this part of it with David. Uh, if you go back in time a thousand years from when this story happens, that is when the nation state of Israel was at, at the height of its political powers. The, the, the borders were as big as they were ever going to get. And David is the king who is on the throne at that time. And while he was there on the throne, God appeared to David and showed, said this to him during the, his reign. He says, David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, right, when you die, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, on one hand, this is talking about David's physical son, Solomon, who's the person who actually did build the temple, this house for his name. But by the first century when Mary lived, the people of Israel realized that there was something more going on in this promise. Right? It wasn't just talking about David's physical descendant, Solomon. Instead, they believed that this promise actually pointed ahead to a ruler who was still to come, who they knew as the Messiah, this long-awaited Savior who would come and deliver the people of Israel. So by using that phrase, you know, he's going to sit on the throne of David, the angel is basically saying, Mary, Mary, your boy, he's the one that people have been waiting for. Mary, the answer to a thousand years of prayer is growing inside of you right now. Now, here's a question for you. If you were a middle school-aged girl, and I know it's, it's kind of hard to imagine if you're not, like, what would be, but imagine if you were a middle school-aged girl and an angel showed up and gave you this message, how would you respond? <laughs> I will tell you how middle school age Mike girl, however that works out, I would have freaked out, right? I would have been terrified. Yeah, people are nodding like, yes, me too, right? But that's not how Mary responds, right? Look, look at how Mary responds. She just says, how will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. 
Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. Why is that? For no word from God will ever fail. Look at how Mary replies. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left. So again, this contrast all throughout the chapter, right? So if you remember earlier in the story, Zechariah, the priest, the guy in the temple, right? The angel shows up and says, your wife is going to have a child even in her old age. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I think for Zechariah, who probably had spent all of the years, you know, before she hit menopause, hoping that they would have a baby, and those hopes were never realized, and the angel says, now it's going to happen. Zechariah was just afraid to hope that it might. So he actually asked for, for some proof, right? Like, I need some assurance. He asked the angel, how can I be sure? But Mary doesn't respond that way. Like, she doesn't doubt that it's going to happen. She does have a question about logistics, right? She's like, so how exactly is this going to happen? And the angel's response is very simple. This is the way one scholar describes it. He said that the Holy Spirit would come upon Mary, enabling her, as God's Spirit always does, to do and be more than she could be by herself. And the angel's response, while it doesn't necessarily answer all the intellectual questions that we might have, it's enough for Mary. So she simply responds by saying, I am the Lord's servant. Again, it's this powerful example of faith and trust. And again, it's that contrast, right? Zachariah, the priest, the one who worked in the temple, like the one that you think would respond with faith, he doesn't respond with nearly as much faith as this girl who's just out in the country who simply believes and asks, okay, what's my next right step? Now, let's stop here and hit pause for just a second and talk about the whole miraculous birth. Um, I fully understand that some of us who are here today or who are watching online have a worldview that makes it really hard to believe that miracles like this can happen. After all, we don't see this kind of thing happen in our daily life on a regular basis. Now, Christians, we believe that God can do all kinds of miracles. I mean, we believe that God brought a dead man back to life. So, you know, well, this doesn't seem like too difficult after that. Um, But here's the thing. If you're here today and maybe you're exploring faith or maybe you're not sure what you believe yet about Jesus or the Bible or somebody just invited you and you're brand new to all of this. Yeah, I just want to acknowledge that if you've got some real questions, I don't know if that actually happened. I get that. I think that's a perfectly logical and normal response. So if you are in that boat, what I want to invite you to do is just for the next few minutes, kind of take those questions and set them to the side and just think, okay, what did Luke, what did the author, what was he driving at? Why did he include those details here about this miraculous birth? What is he trying to show us about this baby by saying that? And really, he's trying to show us that this baby has a unique relationship with God himself and that God is going to use him in very unique ways. And I think you see that if you go on in the story, the next thing that happens kind of emphasizes that. It says, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth, right? This is old Elizabeth who's now having a baby. Uh, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaped, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And again, this is such a wonderful little moment in the story. Because look at what God in his generosity, look what he provides for Mary here. He provides some community for her. He provides somebody who understands what's going on. Mary's not alone. When she shows up, 
Do you notice she doesn't have to try to explain to Elizabeth? So Elizabeth, you know, it's going to be hard to believe, right? But this is what I got. This is what's going on. No, God had already shown Elizabeth how special this baby was. So there's no explanation. She just welcomes Mary in. And what a gift that must have been for a middle school age girl who finds out that she's getting ready to have a baby, right? To know that she's not alone. To know that, that while God is inviting her to step into this difficult thing, she's got somebody who knows what's going on, who's with her, who will help her each step of the way. And look at how Mary responds when Elizabeth says this. She responds in a way that maybe we wouldn't do. She responds by singing, okay? And here's the thing, right? At, at our church, like, we sing to Jesus a lot. We sing a lot of songs about Jesus. We're pretty big on Jesus here. But what you see in this text This is the very first song that was ever written about Jesus that is being sung for the very first time. So this is like kind of the the precursor of everything that we do in worship together. So look at this. So Mary says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their throne, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And then the story ends by saying that Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then heads home. Now, you need to know that almost everything that Mary says in this song is either a direct quotation from the Old Testament or is a reference to some other Old Testament story. Specifically, there is a lot of overlap between what Mary sings here and what a woman named Hannah sang in the, burst of, in the book of 1 Samuel, right after an angel had told her that she also was going to have an unexpected child, Samuel, who would play a part in God's plan. But the, the theme that you see all through this is how God chooses to work through very unlikely people, right? The people who seem to have it all are the people that God is not necessarily, you know, at the top of his list to work his plans out through. Instead, he works through unlikely people to achieve his goals. And I think there's a really, really important lesson for us in that. Because sometimes, I think that we have a tendency to disqualify ourselves from the things that God is calling us to do. But God never does that, right? We tend to look at our shortcomings, our failures, our inadequacies, and and we just, we disqualify ourselves from out of the gate from what God's inviting us to do. But God doesn't do that. And again, do you remember how Luke goes out of his way to intentionally contrast Zechariah and Mary? I mean, Zechariah is the kind of person that you assume that God is going to work through, right? He's a priest. He works in the temple. He lives in the capital. He's descended from Moses' brother Aaron. He's a man in a day and age where men did everything. So when the angel shows up and says, Zechariah, your son's going to play a part in this, we say, of course he is. Zechariah is exactly the kind of person that God would work through. But then when you get to Mary, it doesn't seem like it would add up. I mean, if anybody, if anybody would look at the situation of their own life and disqualify themselves from what God is inviting them to do, it would be Mary who would have a reason to do that. But she doesn't do that, does she? She doesn't assume that God is making a mistake. She doesn't talk to him and say, God, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just a small town girl. I'm, I'm living in a lonely world. You know, she just, 
She doesn't say, God, I think you're doing this wrong, right? Instead, you can't, you can't use me. She just trusts that if God calls her to do it, God will help her to do it. Could even say God says, don't stop believing, Mary. <laughs> no, but, but again, that's, that's something that I think we need to take to heart today. Because I don't know about you all, but there have been times in my life where I very clearly felt like God was saying, hey, here's what I want you to do. And I've said, you got the wrong guy. And I have backed out because I didn't feel good enough, or I didn't feel like I knew enough, or I didn't feel like I was Christian-y enough, or I knew the right things to do, and I disqualified myself. And you may have done that too. And if you have, you're in pretty good company, right? If you read through the Bible, you see that over and over again, there are, are characters who God taps them on the shoulder, and they're like, no, 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 no. I mean, we, uh, we worked through the book of Exodus not too long ago, and, and there's a great story in Moses, right? Moses does that. God taps Moses on the shoulder and says, Moses, I'm going to work through you to deliver my people from the land of Egypt. And Moses is like, you got the wrong guy. I mean, Moses basically argues with God. And he says, well, I can't do it in this. You know, I don't really public speak well in this. And God keeps working with him. Eventually, Moses just says, God, pick somebody else, please. But look at how God responds in that situation. When Moses says, God, I am not up to the challenge of what you're calling me to do. God doesn't come up to him and say, Moses, you are wrong. You are good enough and you're smart enough and doggone it, people like you. Moses, you can do this. No, Moses says, God, I can't do this on my own. And he says, you're right, you can't. And that's okay, because I will be with you, right? I I am going to be with you. And again, that is the lesson that Moses had to learn, but Mary just seems to know that already, which I think is why when the angel says that, she doesn't try to put up a fight or or do something different. Um, instead, she just decides, okay, if God's calling me to do this, he's going to empower me to do it. And that's, that's something I think we need to remember. We need to remember what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians all those years ago. He says that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Like on our own, we absolutely are not able to do what God is calling us to do, and that's okay. Because he is the one who always empowers people to do what he's truly calling them to do. And I think that's the, the single biggest point that we need to pull out of Mary's story this morning. But, but there's one other really interesting and important thing going on in this song that I, I want to draw your attention to. And it's right at the very end of it when she says this. She says that God has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. And then look at this line. It says, just as he promised our ancestors. So what promise is that? I mean, that's a really important line because here Mary is tying back what God is doing in her life for the birth of Jesus to these foundational promises that he made to his people all the way back in the book of Genesis. Right, so if you go to Genesis, the first book of the, the, the Hebrew Bible, the, the Old Testament, you see the story of how it all began and God created the world and he created humanity, people like us to live in the world and to live in a right relationship with him and with each other and the world around them. And that's how things began. And the only thing people had to do to keep that good thing going was to trust God. And humanity makes it all of like two pages before they don't. They they decide, you know, we can probably decide what's right and wrong for ourselves. And as a result of their sinful and stupid and selfish decisions, all of those right relationships that we were created for, all of those things get broken. And we see the ongoing consequences of that in our world today. We experience that brokenness in our relationship with God and with each other, and with the world around us. But God loved humanity too much to let things stay that way. So immediately, he puts this rescue plan in place. Like when he's talking to Adam and Eve about the consequences of their decision, he makes this promise to Eve that one day the offspring of a woman would come 
who would crush the head of evil once and for all. Right? One day, somebody was going to come who was going to trust God perfectly, who would trust that his ways were right. And as a result, God's blessings would once again go out into the entire world. And that's the very first time in the Bible that we see this promise that everything that was broken is going to be put back together again. And then just a few chapters later in Genesis 12, God starts to put that plan into action. He calls one man, Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to work through you. Your descendants are going to become this incredible nation of people, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. But the result of that blessing is not just that you keep it yourself. I'm going to work through your descendants so that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So when Mary kind of brings her song to a crescendo by talking about how God's decision to bless her with this child is a part of how he is remembering to be merciful to Abraham just as he promised, this is the promise that she's talking about. This song is about how God is going to use Mary's boy to fully and finally answer that promise that he made back in Genesis 3. And I want to share an image with you this morning because it's one of the most powerful illustrations I've ever seen of that. We've, we've looked at this before, but it's worth focusing on again. Uh, this is a print. It was created by an artist named Scott Erickson. There's actually a nun who did an oil painting of this, and he based the print off of that. But it, it's really a visual representation of the way the biblical authors are pulling these stories together, right? So there you see Mary and Eve. And, and as Mary reaches out a hand to Eve's shoulder to comfort her, Eve reaches a hand out to feel this new life growing inside of Mary. And on the ground, you see this apple that was bitten into the sign of humanity's failure to trust God. But look at Mary's foot and how she is crushing the head of this snake, showing how this baby inside of her will fulfill the promise of Genesis 3. So several years ago, we were looking at this text in a sermon, and we actually purchased a copy of this print. And we have it set up in the lobby today as a display. And I would encourage you to spend some time looking at that. And just really reflecting on the truth that this artwork communicates before you leave. Um, here's, a, here's an idea I want you to take with you, okay? One of the things that I think we see in this story is that God is always working to move his plans forward. And that includes his plan for our world, as well as his plan for our own individual lives, for our families, for our friendships. God can do both things at once. Now, if it may not happen in the way that we expect, It might involve changing some of our plans or our hopes, but God is always at work. And he often invites us to come and to participate in what it is that he's doing in the world. So it's really up to us to figure out how we're going to respond if God interrupts our plans and our dreams and our ideas. I mean, that's what happens with Mary. I am pretty confident that her life plan did not involve getting pregnant by the Holy Spirit at a time when, like, most kids are learning algebra. But God interrupted her plans with an invitation to be a part of something that was much, much bigger. In her mind, she, she cannot conceive how that would happen, right? So she asks, what, what's this going to be? Or why would God use somebody as lowly and as humble as her? But God puts that opportunity in front of her, and she responds. Just like God will often put opportunities in front of us, and he invites us to respond, right? So look at how Mary responds. She does two things. And the first thing that she does is she says this. She says, I am the Lord's servant. Uh, She talks about who she is, what her identity is. And I love the way another pastor described this, so I'll just read it to you. He says, before she says anything else, she reminds herself who she is and whose she is. She says, I belong to the king of kings. He is my Lord, and I'm called to serve him. 
And even though I don't understand and can't figure it all out, and it will certainly cost me, and it's probably going to be harder than anything I can ever imagine, I belong to him. And because I belong to him, I can trust him with the outcome, and I will be obedient. And then it's after she reminds herself of who she is, she commits herself to action, and she says one of the most faith-filled things in the entire Bible. She says, may your word to me be fulfilled. In other words, God, I don't have to have fear about your plans because I know who I am. I'm yours, which means I know you, which means I know that your plans are good and that you're just and that you're loving. And if you are interrupting me with something that's inconvenient or hard, I don't feel qualified to do it. I can still trust that you will see me through it because your power is greater than mine and your ways are above mine and your plans are above mine. I do not have to be afraid because I know who I belong to. This is why it seemed like it was really fitting for us to end, commu- end today by taking communion together. Oftentimes we do that earlier in our service. But in just a moment, in fact, the, the people who are going to help us uh, serve communion, you guys can go ahead and start getting ready. Uh, but when you stop and think about what happens at communion, we are invited to the table, not because of anything that we have done, but simply because of who we are. Right? God says, you are my children, you're my family, I want you to come to the table. And when you think about what happens at communion, we believe in a way that we cannot fully wrap our brains around. We have a genuine encounter with the living God, with his power and with his presence. In in that bread and that cup, somehow we meet him and he meets our needs in a way we can't fully understand. Uh, Which is why in the the church I served at in Oklahoma, we would often set communion up uh, with this invitation. We would say, brothers and sisters, this bread, this cup, this is food for the journey to which God has called you. May our lives together be nourished by Christ himself as we follow him. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And then when I'm done with the prayer, the musicians are going to have some instrumental music and the the communion helpers are going to pass the trays. If you choose not to take communion with us for any reason today, that's totally fine. Just pass the tray along. But if you want to take communion, just grab the bread and the cup. And at at any time, whenever you're ready, during that instrumental music, just go ahead and take communion on your own. And, And we just trust and pray that in these moments you will have an honest encounter with the living God. So would you pray with me? Uh, God, I am so grateful um, that we can come to you and meet you and find what we need in you. Uh, To be really honest, I'm really grateful that you've never called me to do anything as hard as what you called Mary to do because I think about the little things that you have asked me to do in relation to that and the ways that I have not always risen to the challenge where I have disqualified myself or stood back. So we're grateful, Lord, for the example of faith that we see in her. And God, I I don't know what everybody needs to hear from you this morning, but I know that all of us need an encounter with you. So in these moments, I just pray that you would speak to us, uh, that as we take the bread and as the take with the cup, we, we would hear from you, be those words of encouragement or challenge or comfort or hope. And God, would we recognize that in in the same way our bodies derive strength from eating and drinking, that we, in the bread and the cup, we receive from you what we need to actually do what you are calling us to do. God, you empower the people that you call. Uh, May our lives together be nourished by your true presence and power in these moments. Amen.